We have an imagined idea of science as this objective, free-floating, value-neutral thing. But we always have to remember that, for better or worse, society shapes how science works. To deal with scientific racism, to deal with the politicization of science, it's not just an issue for the humanities. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. The show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. This is my 17th year in the classroom, and this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. If you are new to the show, we want to extend a warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you appreciate what you see or what you hear if, you're, if you are listening to the podcast on the go. Of course, all of our episodes are available at our website, aotashow.com. And we definitely want to extend a super dope, super congratulatory, warm, big old hug for everybody celebrating National Hispanic Heritage Month. And if you are tuning into this episode after Hispanic Heritage Month has already ended, we hope you are enjoying the perhaps end of times around the election and whatever is following. Because, um, Jeff, I'm not quite sure um, <laughs> what that future looks like. Oh, man. I don't think any of us are. And, I, I you know, I know we, we record these episodes in advance, so the, the time scale is going to be a little bit off here. But yeah. for those of us in L.A., last night... At like 11.30, there was a jolting earthquake. And I literally was like, I cannot take this, man. Like, I that can't, like wasn't like, even top <laughs> top five crazy things to happen just yeah, yesterday. Yeah, I mean, the world is on fire. I can see the smoke right out the window, yeah. right? Uh, fascism is coming. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Uh, you know, <laughs> climate change just, is threatening us all. And now the earth is like, how about a little rattle? Uh, so, you know, it's been it's been quite a quite a week, and, quite a moment. And somebody in might history. be listening to this episode or watching it on YouTube in like November, December and thinking like, oh, yeah, they're talking about times when when things were nice and smooth and calm. Yeah. All bad. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> but anyways, right now, anyways, so. I mean, we're here to talk about <laughs> education because no matter what's happening, we know that that children are the future, and we know that our youth, if we um, help them become the the critical learners and thinkers, and 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 push a humanizing view of of the world and and of each other, we know that they can. Well, we hope that they can piece together this mess that we are we are leaving them. So Jeff, let's talk about education. What's what's on the agenda for today's episode? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for everybody as usual and I'm I'm really excited because we are welcoming back one of our very first guests uh, on the show. Um, I think it was episode two, if yeah, I, I, if I remember correctly. Two, yeah. It's been it's been three years, so my memory might be fading a little bit. But um, our second ever episode um, featured uh, a couple of amazing guests, and this was one of them. Um, and he is Dr. Terrence Keel. He is now a professor at UCLA. Yeah. And um, he is uh, really an expert and a scholar who studies the um, the kind of uh, use of science in American society and in education. And he's going to help us kind of unpack 
um, you know, we have been having this conversation about what does it mean to to do anti-racist education and to be anti-racist in how we teach and how we design curriculum. And we've talked about that in math and English and, um, you know, a little bit in the social studies. Uh, and Dr. Keel is going to help us unpack what that can look like in the science classroom, which I think is a topic lots of folks have been, you know, interested in and wondering about and, and you know, kind of having lots of questions about. So it's going to be a great conversation. He's a fascinating guest, and uh, you definitely want to stick around and see it. What, what university did you say he, he works at? I think it was the University of California at Los Angeles, Manuel. Are Wait, you familiar the, with that school? The number one public university in the nation? <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, you, you don't know. Don't say. I, in the world, I, actually. I heard through you know, the grapevine. That, you know, maybe. I believe maybe. in rankings and all that. But there might be some folks in uh, like Ann Arbor and Chapel Hill and Berkeley. No, these are argue this is U.S. News that. and World uh, Report, Jeff. It's the only ranking that matters. Uh, not that the rankings uh, matter. <laughs> well, ranking two through the rest don't matter, but number one matters. Right. Um, and right. Uh, that mm -hmm. will be UCLA. Anyways, um, all right, folks. Before we get to that conversation about science and anti-racism in in the classroom, let's let's go ahead and dig into some recent headlines in education, particularly looking at some stories that you might have missed. All right. So up next is our do now. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in our world of education. Jeff, how do you want to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, as any good teacher knows, every now and then you got to just make sure the kids are paying attention. So uh, we're going to test all the folks out there in the AOTA show family with a surprise pop quiz. Ooh, pop quiz. Um, will the AOTA family have to turn their cameras on for the Zoom? They will. And if not, I'm Gotta calling make sure your parents there, and you kicking know? you out and muting you. So, All of that. Yes. All of that. <laughs> All right, Jeff. First quiz question for today. What you got? All right, man. Well, first question for today is what unites us all, but at the same time is leaving millions of us behind? Hmm. That sounds like some real like Star Trek-y sci-fi type of thing. I know this isn't really the podcast for sci-fi, Jeff, but um, perhaps this story has to do with that. I don't know. Is this some sort of like a, you know, federation bringing everyone together, but then leaving, leaving folks in the dust on certain planets? You know, uh, I, I was a big Star Trek fan. Still am a big Star Trek fan. And I it might, is the Federation, I, right? Or am I getting that no, mixed yeah, up with some the, other No, yeah, it's show? the United Federation of Planets. Um, you know, the, the post-apocalyptic post utopian uh, Earth where people get along and are not just motivated by profit and, and resource extraction. Oh, that's heavy on the fiction. It's the sci-fi, <laughs> light on the science, heavy on the fiction. It is. I mean, in this moment, it feels like ridiculous fiction. But... Um, Manuel, that, that's a very interesting answer. The correct answer is high-speed internet access. High-speed internet service, man, broadband. Um, as, as you and every other educator across this country has probably come into contact with in one form or another since March when we all went inside due to the pandemic, um, we know that America has some real gaps, some real issues with making sure that everybody has high-speed internet access. So 
We're going to get into this today, um, uh, talking about a story by Kevin Mankin in L.A. School Report. And uh, as early as the mid-90s, the U.S. federal government was aware of an emerging digital divide with rates of access to home internet service, um, which of course was a new technology at the time, being divided sharply by class, race, and geography across the United States. Tens of millions of America's school-age students are now experiencing either virtual school or some form of hybrid schooling, and the lingering digital divide has been cast very brightly into the national spotlight. In one recent study from the Brookings Institute, um, they found that in 2015, roughly one quarter of Americans lived in neighborhoods where fewer than 40% of households had broadband. So let's say that again. One quarter of the country lived in a neighborhood where close to half of the households don't have broadband. Um, and nearly 18 million school-aged children lived in such neighborhoods overall. Today, according to an April 2020 report in the LA Times, roughly 200,000 California households alone with school-aged children are currently without either the computers or the hotspots that they need. Now, to many technology advocates, those uh, coverage gaps are evidence of just a market failure. Um, with big internet service providers like AT&T, Comcast, and Spectrum being less likely to compete against one another in rural areas where it costs more to provide service uh, to fewer customers, but also in urban areas where there are concentrations of low-income folks and they have viewed those areas as poor investments. Um, a damning Wall Street Journal analysis of thousands of telephone bills from all 50 states found that residents of rural and low-income communities received slower internet speeds while paying similar prices to their more affluent and urban counterparts. That, I'm sure, sounds not at all familiar in American history. Um, and uh, moreover, in the vast majority of cases, the customers um, in those situations had no second option of a fiber or cable internet provider. So Manuel, we're in this world where the internet is your path to school for so many millions of students across the country. And yet, in the richest country in the history of the world, we still have huge swaths of the nation geographically and uh, large numbers of people population-wise who don't have stable broadband access at home. You're a teacher, you're grappling with this in some way, I'm sure. What say you? Yeah, it's just crazy that we are still dealing with this sort of issue. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember they promised me we'd have flying cars by the time I grew up, like flying cars. And we don't even have internet across, you know, where everybody lives, which is crazy to me. And as a teacher, so my school is fully online distance learning. And I'll be honest, as much differentiation as we're providing, as much as I'm doing to make sure that, you know, if a student's Wi-Fi goes down or, or any other hiccups happen, they can still catch up. You know, I'm recording certain parts of my teaching. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But at the end of the day, if a student simply does not have Internet access at all, like there, there really is no way for them to truly access the curriculum right now in our district. Like we don't have the, the paper packet option. Now, to my district's credit, we've giving Chromebooks to everybody, hotspots to all the families, but our, our district covers some foothills and the foothills are, are one of those areas where the internet coverage is, is pretty spotty. Now, my, my dentist who, who makes a lot of money and lives in a really nice part of LA, uh, he was explaining that like 
he didn't have, have broadband at his house because he lives somewhere in the hills and, and that part of the hills doesn't have have whatever, you know, uh, broadband access that, that other neighborhoods have. So he had to spring for some kind of like satellite internet thing that's like super crazy, crazy, crazy expensive. And that's in LA. Now, one thing that I found interesting about this article is that, that it did point out that a lot of these um, gaps are happening in rural areas and areas that are, that are outside of like metropolitan uh, regions. And as a teacher who's always taught in like a city, like always taught in quote unquote urban areas, I'll be honest, I'd, rural education issues aren't front of mind for me. And hearing about this and reading the details in this article, uh, the article opened up by talking about um, Tennessee in this area near Chattanooga, which um, is known to be sort of like a tech hub for that region. But then you you extend out from there and it gets really rural really quickly. And there's not Internet access for a lot of folks within that particular district. You know, I don't, I don't often think about those those issues and now that we are in this pandemic and now that internet access really is everything, I'm really, really, really concerned about the impact that this is gonna have on those students for sure. And it just seems to be so, I don't, what, I, I don't even know what the word is for it, but just like unacceptable that we would have any area of the US in 2020 that doesn't have reliable internet access. Like that's just, that's just mind blowing to me for sure. I definitely hope that those schools and those districts are, are doing something for those kids because obviously, you know, we've talked about whether or not the, the COVID learning loss gap, whatever you want to call it, um, is going to be overblown and weaponized. But I mean, kids need something though, regardless, right? Kids need something. So if I'm a kid and I just don't have much internet access and they drop off this packet for me to work on all week, like that's just not doing anything for me. So I'm really feeling for those kids and those teachers for sure who who are you know trying to connect with their kids online and some are there and some aren't. It's very, very, very difficult stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. As you were, as you were saying that, you were making me think there was a... Um a school official in the article who was quoted as talking about, you know, we have like hardware and software and the digital divide represents, you know, the kids who, who are working with treeware, uh, you know, yeah. in the, and paper packets, right? Um, and it you Sounds know, like I'm a real not, IT guy type of thing to say. Right, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not hating on, uh, you know, paper pencil technology, but I think in this moment, as you said, man, it's so unacceptable that we in a country that has such vast wealth have not solved this problem. And I think it's really pointing out the, the extent to which internet service, high-speed, reliable internet service in this day and age is not any different than water, than electricity, than you know, gas, if, uh, if you're in a community where you know, gas is what heats, uh, what gives you, um, you know, the ability to cook and, and have hot water, right? And so it, it is like a utility and something that should be an assumed, guaranteed service that every household has access to by default, right? Um, and so the fact that we have parts of LA County, the most populous county in the entire country, in the second largest city in the country, and one of the most densely populated parts of the country, where we have whole communities, um, wealthy parts of town and poor parts of town that don't have access to broadband internet is crazy, right? Like it just is crazy. And it makes me think like we are defining success as a people in in the wrong way, right? We can't, We cannot call ourselves 
a successful society if if we can't even get everybody online because not only is school online now but everything that you do after school right so job applications college admissions right all that stuff um, requires internet access so I think this is this is shining a bright light on an issue that like is solvable and you know we just need to solve right like this is a matter of will not a matter of technology or resources yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking about that. I think it was a CNN profile that I think it was CNN. I could be wrong. might have been L.A. Times, but um, they profiled this family that was like where they there was a, a viral photo that went out of these kids sitting in the parking lot of I, some fast food place trying to do their homework because that fast food place had Wi-Fi. And, um, you know, that that photo went viral because here's the start of the school year. I believe it was L.A. Unified. And how can you have, to your point, uh, kids, anyone living in the most densely populated county in the nation and not have access to Internet? Like, that's just doesn't, you know, so, you know, that that story was propped up as a feel good story because that district gave them a, a hotspot. But it's like, whoa, that's this is not a feel good story. This shouldn't have happened. They should have never had to go to some fast food spot to do their schoolwork like this should have been solved. So, yeah, it's just really just really a reminder of, of how challenging this, this era of education really truly is. So shout out to everybody who might be listening to this, who is either an educator or working in, on the tech side of things or have you know your own kids and you're trying to do your best to help them out with, with their education at this time, because this is, this is really challenging times. And um, I know a lot of good people are doing a lot of good work to try to, tr to, try to solve this. It's really unfortunate that the, the big tech companies and, and our own government couldn't have laid out the infrastructure ahead of time for, for a, a moment like this. But you know, here we are. Here we are. Yep. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Next quiz question. You ready? I'm ready. Lay it on me. All right. What do folks in the most liberal state in the union say they love but actually hate? Mm. Wow. Well, I think I'm going to say um, I'm going to. Wow. That's a, that's actually a tough one, Manuel. I think what I'm going to say is um, avocado toast. Mm. Who hates avocado toast? I think, you know, the, it's delicious. the hipsters love the avocado toast, but I think there's a whole generation of folks that are like, what are these people doing with their avocado toast? Yeah, I was anti-avocado toast for a long time because I was like, that just sounds ridiculous. That sounds made up. <laughs> I'm not going to contribute to this. And then we went somewhere. We are in Ohio or somewhere, and we had some, and it was freaking delicious. And now my wife makes it, like, during the week because she's also working from home. I mean, you know. And it's, it's delicious. It's avocado. It's toast, right? Like, what's wrong with either of those things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, with some fried egg on it. Mm, good stuff. Yes. But in any case, that's not the answer here. The, 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 the liberal folks of California love their avocado <laughs> toast. Um, this actually has to do with affirmative action, mm. which is on the ballot this November under Prop 16. Prop 16 would undo Prop 209, which back in the 90s um, did away with affirmative action. And right now, California is one of nine states that has banned affirmative action altogether. So Prop 16 seeks to change that. But according to this recent, um, this recent article from EdSource from John Fensterwald, the homie, shout out to John, um, it looks like Prop 16 has a very uphill battle to fight. All right, so let's get into it. So um, Prop 16, as I said, could overturn the state's two decade long ban on affirmative action in things like college admissions and hiring. Um, but according to a Public Policy Institute of California poll that was released on September 16th, fewer than a third of likely voters say they favor that idea. 
This survey of over 1,100 likely voters found that 31% said they would vote in favor of Prop 16. However, 47% said they opposed the measure and 22% have not yet decided. The survey found that Prop 16 was behind in every region in the state, although it was nearly even in the Bay Area. Most voters under 45, most of whom were too young to vote in 1996 when Prop 209 was on the ballot, um, most of those younger voter voters oppose Prop 16 and 36% support it. 16% are still undecided and even fewer older voters favor Prop 16, which is 29% of folks over the age of 45 supporting it. At this point, there's no organized campaign for or against Prop 16, and there's there's really little time left. With voters worried whether the post office will, will deliver those mail-in ballots on time, people will likely put them in the mail sooner than they did in past years, and the next few weeks will be critical for all campaigns to get their messages out, said Mark Balasarde, president and CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. Jeff, are you surprised that the voters of California appear to um, not really be in favor of bringing back affirmative action? You know, Matt, well, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised and also a little bit not surprised. So on the one hand, I am not surprised that California is revealing itself through this set of polling to be more racist than everybody thinks it is because we live in California and we know that California is more racist than everybody says it is. Right. So on that level, it's, it's not surprising. On another level, I am surprised at just how bad the data is. Right. And now maybe this is early polling. Maybe people are just not that educated yet about what Prop 16 is and means. We'll see what happens in a couple months, uh, you know, when the polls close. But the idea that really in no part of the state is there a majority vote in favor of Prop 16 right now in the midst, right, of the sustained national uprising around racial justice, right? In the midst of cops shooting and abusing their power against black people and massive protests in the streets that have been you know, multiracial, intersectional coalition kind of protest. The idea that even in this moment, when people are talking about race in, in deeper and more sophisticated ways than I've ever seen in my lifetime, that was a little bit shocking, right? That there's not a majority anywhere, even in the so-called liberal paradise Bay Area, right? So, and even among young people in the state. So this was, this was very discouraging news for me to hear. I, I honestly... I, it was worse than I thought, even though I thought the data was going to be worse than everybody maybe assumed it was when the, you know, when the um, ballot measure emerged from the state legislature. Yeah, I also am surprised. And as a classroom teacher, I am very much concerned about Prop 16 and affirmative action, not just as it pertains to uh, race conscious admissions for UC system for for my students, but also as it pertains to the availability of, of state state grants and contracts for for organizations and groups that are really trying hard to to uplift uh, marginalized folks throughout throughout the state. So a few things about these polling numbers. First of all, I think a lot of folks are a little hesitant to support it because they are not fully sure about what it means. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. And especially if somebody wasn't around for the Prop 209 campaign, they, they might not quite understand what was so bad about Prop 209. 
I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the commercials with Martin Luther King. We've, we've spoken on the show before about Prop 16, and I, and yeah. I shared my story of being one of the first um, classes of freshmen in the UC system past, uh, after Prop 209 and how lily white the university was and how much of a, a visible change um, UCLA underwent uh, after Prop 209 as compared to when my sister went there before Prop 209. Um, but in any case, I remember that campaign. I remember them having images of Martin Luther King. And I remember the ballot itself was worded in such a way that it sounded like, yeah, this this sounds great. It, it said something about uh, making it so that uh, state entities couldn't consider race in their decision making, something like that. And, and of course, that sounds great. Like, oh, yeah, we don't want anyone to be, you know, thinking in racist terms when they're when they're trying to um, you know, make decisions on employment or, or admission or whatever, like things like that. So um, Prop 209, the actual impact of it, I think a lot of people voted for it who didn't quite understand what it was really doing. And I think this generation of voters probably looks back at the language of Prop 209 and thinks like, oh, this doesn't seem so bad. And this Prop 16, I'm not quite sure what it's getting at. So this polling, I learned yesterday, um, Ed Trust West is, is working really hard to, to uh, support Prop 16. And I learned that the, the figures vary a lot when you start to let people know who actually supports Prop 16. So I'm going to read out some of the folks who support Prop 16. And, you know, you can judge for yourself if these are folks who you want to be on the side of when it comes to comes to this issue. So if you are watching on YouTube, I'm going to just show the graphic of all the folks that support Prop 16 because it's a it's a long, long list. But that list includes um, current vice presidential uh, candidate Kamala Harris, our governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, Nancy Pelosi. If you were somebody who was like, um, Buttigieg gang or whatever he called it. No, it was Yang gang. What was Buttigieg's like little crew? Did he have, there, was there a name for Buttigieg supporters? I, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like there was a name for, anyways, <laughs> he himself supports Prop 16. So does Tom Steyer. Um, Karen Bass, whose name came up as a possible um, VP choice, she supports it as well. And if you're like, oh yeah, those are all, you know, whatever, big time Democrats, and I'm not just going to support what they support. A lot of other folks support it too. Um, activists such as Bernice King, Dolores Huerta supports it, Gloria Steinem supports it. And a whole slew of organizations, the Asian American Pacific Islander Women Lead Organization, the Asian American Pacific Islanders for Civic Empowerment, they support it. If you're like, okay, yeah, there's all these activist groups, NAACP chapters, Urban League chapters that support it, but that doesn't really do it for me. Well, San Francisco 49ers also have endorsed Prop 16. The San Francisco Giants have also endorsed Prop 16. The San Jose Earthquake have also endorsed Prop 16. So now you might be thinking, why would these sports teams care? And why would these sports teams want to endorse something? Because, you know, it tends to be that sports teams try to stay out of politics, especially NFL. Like, you know, you think about that. But Prop 16, it's not about bringing back quotas or anything like that. So that's one of the misconceptions that, oh, you know, if we bring back affirmative action, there's going to be these quotas and a really good candidate to be a firefighter is going to be passed over for, um, you know, for a black candidate who might not be as good because the, the department has to fill these quotas. Quotas are, are, are still banned under Prop 16, so there's no quotas there. And a lot of this has to do with making it possible for, for groups, um, organizations, small businesses that um, work for marginalized folks to get some of these state contracts that, that are available, that they all often get beat out by you know, other, other firms that are larger and have more resources. And other folks, if you're still like, oh, I don't know, I still don't know, okay, Kaiser Permanente has endorsed Prop 16. Teach for America has endorsed Prop 16, Planned Parenthood, um, the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle. Like basically it's a long running list, the totality of the group that is in favor of Prop 16. These are a lot of great folks. And as a teacher who 
mostly teaches black and brown kids. I want to see these organizations that work hard for black and brown kids. I want to see them have a chance at giving, getting some of this support, some of the state funding, which now you know can't be directly targeted to them. So let's say you want more black girls in STEM, and here's a great organization in Los Angeles that supports black girls in STEM, and there's the state grant that's available. Well, let's say the folks behind the state grant want to support black girls in STEM. They can't support that group in such a way that shows preference for the fact that it's women, the fact that it's um, black women, because that's that goes counter to Prop 209. But Prop 16 would allow them to do that to help level the playing field. If we're talking about doing something about systemic racism and systemic oppression, we need things like this. And Prop 16 just makes it easier for organizations to, to do that work. So I definitely wholeheartedly support it. I think if more folks knew who was behind it and if more folks knew that you know it doesn't bring back quotas. Um, it's not going to make it to, to where there's fewer spaces left for for certain other groups. I mean, I think there will be even more support. I think the support would be overwhelming. So Jeff, I think I, I disagree with um, your take that like this is a, a sign of how racist California still is. California definitely is still racist. But I think a lot of these folks, they, their support would be there if they just understood the measure better. But unfortunately, we're running out of time to, to spread the message and, and help inform folks. So yeah, it's not looking good right now for Prop 16. Yeah, I mean, I hear that, man. Well, that was, that was, that was impactful. Uh, set of information right there. I will say, I think it's a generous er interpretation to, to, to think that people just aren't that informed about it um, at this point. I, you know, I think that that's probably true. And when they're surveying folks, I'm sure they made it clear that this is about affirmative action. And I'm sure that people responded the way they actually think, right? And and I but did they know the Niners have endorsed it? <laughs> they don't care. I mean, care. come on, Jeff. Five they times Super Bowl care, champion for the Niners. These people do not care, Manuel. They, I, you know, I California is a wonderful place. There's lots of really, you know, liberal, social justice-minded people here, and. Affirmative action is one of those policies that challenges the meritocracy and, you know, pretty directly. Right. And because it it says, hey, our system's unfair. And so we're going to do something to try to correct the balance. Right. And that brings out people's all their internalized stuff about like, well, I pulled myself by my own, you know, up by my own bootstraps. And I, you know, that's my seat at Stanford and that's my seat at USC and that's my seat, you know, at at Berkeley. Right. And um, and even if they're never going to get, you know, that seat that's theirs <laughs> to begin with, they they have the mental construct. Right. That they're going to work hard and achieve and be self-made and that these these other people out here who are lazy people of color are getting freebies and, and getting a free ride. Right. And it's bringing up all that stuff. And I, I'm, you know, the data is disappointing. The data, I think, is like, yeah, I mean, that's where we are right now, right? So hopefully the stuff you just shared will change people's minds. I, am, I do have some hope around that because that's a pretty, like, broad swath of institutions. Uh, and, and, and the actual list is right? so long. Like, you got to scroll and scroll and scroll. There's so many folks yeah. in support of it. And I, I didn't realize how much support that was. I mean, it was brought up to me yesterday. And I was like, well, who does support it? And I looked, I was like... Wow. Yeah. Okay. And that's great. And I hope you're right, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> yeah, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. I'm just trying to just trying to think positive about something, man. Yeah. And what what sucks is that someone's probably watching this or listening to this who just mailed in their ballot and they're like, oh damn, I didn't know that. 
That's why you got to subscribe to the show That's and get right. notifications. Like, turn on notifications so you know when a new episode drops because you want to be right on it because, um, yeah, man, important stuff. Indeed. So Yes, on Prop case, 16, right, Jeff, I think people. that'll do it for today's Do Now. And up next, we have a super dope guest from my hometown, Sacramento, who's going to help us explore what role the interrogation of race and racism should have in a science class. Because normally we think like, okay, that's like history, English stuff. So uh, let's get into what science classes in K-12 could do to be part of this, this fight against racism. All right, so that's up next. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks for being a big supporter of all the above. We really appreciate it. And we need your help. All you need to do is go to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There, you can chip in via Venmo, via Cash App, or most importantly, you can go to our Anchor page and subscribe there. Everything you can do to help us helps us put together incredible content here on All the Above and make sure you're getting the best each and every week. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are thrilled that you could be here with us and we have a great conversation in store for you. Um, we have been living in this world over the last uh, you know, six months or so in particular, where there's been an explosion of thought and questions and ideas in response to our national uprising around racial justice. And in the field of education, people have been talking a lot about what anti-racist education can look like but usually through the lens of what that looks like in English or perhaps in history classes, the disciplines where folks feel like that's kind of the natural home for that sort of conversation. And today we are joined by an incredible guest who's gonna help us explore what it means, what it can look like to explore racism and anti-racism in the science classroom, a place where maybe many educators are wondering, you know, does anti-racism have a place in the curriculum? And if so, what does it look like? So to help us unpack that incredible topic, we have with us Dr. Terrence Keel. You may recognize him. For those who've been with us on uh, the journey on All the Above for the last three years, he was a guest on our second ever episode. Um, and we are so excited to have him back. Welcome, Terrence Keel, to All the Above. Great to see you guys. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to this important conversation. There's a lot happening in the world right now. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So to tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Terrence Keel, he is an associate professor at UCLA with a split appointment in the Department of African-American Studies and the UCLA Institute for Society and Genetics. He has written widely about American biomedical science, religion, law, and modern thought. He is also, I believe, still to this day, the uh, the owner of the most watched one-on-one -on -one video with an all the above guest on YouTube. Um, so you can go to our YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash all the above to check that out. And again, uh, Dr. Kier, we're just excited to have you. And I'm gonna hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, so we're just gonna cut to the chase here. I mean, thanks for coming on and all that, but let's just, let's just be real. The study of race and racism, all that stuff, I mean, that belongs in the humanities. English, history, all right? Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, you're wrong for a lot of reasons. Uh, 
I think the thing that we have a hard time grappling with as a society, particularly in the United States and other parts of the world, is that we tend to think about science as separate from the humanities, from the arts, and the ways in which the world works. But it's important to know that science always expresses the society that the scientists are operating in. Scientists are influenced by laws that affect their funding. They are shaped by the political priorities of governments and um, political parties. They are in many ways connected to what's going on in our world in all these different um, facets that we tend to sort of not think about because I think we have an imagined idea of science as this objective, free-floating, value-neutral thing. And in many ways, the best science can get at forms of truth that are useful and productive. But we always have to remember that for better or worse, society shapes um, how science works. This then means that to deal with scientific racism, to deal with the politicization of science, it's not just an issue for the humanities. It's also about how we socialize scientists to work and think. Um, let me give you one quick example of how the society affects science. Uh, in 1993, under Bill Clinton's administration, he signed the NIH Revitalization Act, which was an effort to increase the recruitment of women and minorities into clinical trial research, as well as research into diseases and other types of drug uh, interventions. On the one hand, this was a shift from a long history of prioritizing white men within medicine and science and clinical trial research. And what was happening essentially is that major uh, research bodies in the country were not looking at issues of health affecting women, affecting people of color. This was a self-conscious initiative that incentivized scientists to study people of color and women through increased grant funding and through increased sort of dissemination of their research. It had two effects. On the one hand, it put a spotlight on communities of color and women in a positive way. On the other hand, it incentivized thinking in a kind of racial way about why people are sick and specifically looking for genetic explanations for why people of color are different than European Americans, et cetera. This is a moment where, were it not for signing that act in 1993 and the government incentivizing the study of women and minorities, the research wouldn't have taken on those type of questions. And so we don't often think about these things, but they're crucial, I think, for us as a nation moving forward in a positive direction where we're actually healing people through our, through the, through our scientific research. Well, I mean, thank you for, for giving us that example, um, which is one that I think myself and probably most history teachers aren't too familiar with. Um, but oftentimes when I think about science and I think about race, I think about, you know, that 19th century, early 20th century, you know, all the racial stereotypes, racial science, eugenics and all that type of stuff. So part of me is especially like as a black male educator, part of me is, is a little worried about science and race. Uh, why, why, should we, why should we trust science and scientists with the study of race, given the, the really fraught history of the sciences trying to examine race? Your suspicion is warranted, and you should continue to be suspicious as a Black man in this country that has a long history of systematically discriminating against people of color and Black people in particular 
by not allowing clinical research to prioritize our health issues, to have hospitals that are 20 to 15 miles away from your home that you can't access, to have racist encounters between the physician and the patient. This is a long part of America's history. And it's not lost on black people or people of color who have been on the, the, the underside, the ugly side of medicine and science. And so it is a difficult moment, especially now with COVID-19 research, where right now we're in a moment where there's conversations about why people of color are getting sick. Is it their genes? Is it something about their own individual behavior? Or is it structural racism? So living in food deserts, not having access to healthcare insurance, so you're not getting regular checkups. Uh, living in neighborhoods that don't have sidewalks, which means it affects obesity and other kinds of risk factors that might make one sick. Are these communities living near freeways? We know there's an association between the chemical pollutants in the air from freeway traffic, asthma, and having severe COVID-19 symptoms. So if the conversation is about people's genes and their ancestry, and that's why they're sick, we miss all of the things that are happening in our society right now within our control to make people better, to make people more healthy. But we're still not that far removed from the 19th century, as you mentioned, where that was a time where the world saw it was divided in terms of you have good genes or bad genes. You have good genes, you know that, right? <laughs> you have good genes. A lot of it's about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory, you think we're so different? You have good genes in Minnesota. That was a time where the world saw it was divided in terms of you have good genes or bad genes, and if you have bad genes, we're going to either try to sterilize you, segregate you, disempower you so that you don't affect the gene pool. You can see some of these discourses floating up right now when we talk about essential workers and when there was a realization by this administration that essential workers were people of color, there was a shift in terms of prioritizing nationally the CDC's ability to make an intervention. This is an accident, it comes out of a long history. So I think public health and medicine in this country has a massive um, trust issue that it has to develop. It has to buy, get the buy-in from communities at the ground level. And it can't just be, hey, we'll pay you some money to be in our clinical trial. You've got to be on people's doors. You've got to be in town hall meetings. You've got to listen to what community members want. And then from there, create designs for their health with them in mind. Bring them on the boards. Bring them on the teams. Help them think through these issues. And I think until that happens, we're always, we should always have a kind of healthy suspicion about whether or not we're going to regress back into some 19th century racist model, which is not that far behind. Yeah, uh, Terrence, I, I think that's such a fascinating perspective. And um, it's leaving me with a little bit of like a, uh, an unresolved tension in my mind. I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are um, about this issue, which is on the one hand, the need for a healthy sense of skepticism. On the other hand, a need for people to have some trust and faith in the science, right? So COVID giving us a, a great, um, you know, a, a great sort of case study with the, at the same time as we have government manipulation of the CDC to like fit political needs, we have people who are like, I'm not wearing a mask and I'm just gonna walk through Target and scream and cough on people. Right. And so like what's the or we should, you know, reopen all the schools and we don't need PPE in the schools and it's going to be fine because the virus goes away someday. Um, 
how do you sort of strike the balance between the the skepticism and the belief in in real science? That's a great question, and it is a tight line. I think that there is a there is a difference between the let's just say the people who fall in the group of the anti-vaxxers or the anti-science group versus African Americans, Indigenous people, Latinx communities who have been uh, victims and subjects of scientific racism and discrimination and are suspicious because of that. They're two different things, right? I think that there's a clear anti-science sentiment in this nation state because the science is seen to be favoring minorities and people of color. It seems to be prioritizing issues that historically this country has not prioritized. Or a, a general sense of my wealth and class should afford me the ability to take probiotics and healthy vegetables, and I don't need to get a vaccination for polio, et cetera, right? Community of colors, particularly poor communities of color, don't have that luxury. And they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They have a medical establishment, a scientific establishment that has been toned up to the issues. But at the same time, they're reliant on these technologies and research projects, product, projects to essentially help them, make them healthy. And so one way I think you do that by gaining the trust, anyone who does clinical trial research for developing a vaccine or, or developing some kind of uh, therapeutic intervention understands there's always margins of errors. The effectiveness of a drug will have uh, will fall in some kind of a statistical range of effectiveness. If you could disclose those numbers publicly and not in some obscure, you know, uh, New England Journal of Medicine publication, but in something much more practical on the ground, the LA Times, newsletters, so forth and so on. Look, these are the number of people we recruited for this clinical trial research for COVID-19 vaccines. These are the number of African-Americans, these are the number of Latinos, these are the number of indigenous people, so forth and so on, Asian populations. This is the effectiveness of this drug across this demographic. With this, we feel confident that the drug is effective enough in every population to disseminate it. And just put it up, just put the data up there so that people can make their own decision. They may say, you know what, that 10% margin of error, I'm not comfortable with, so I'm not going to take it. Some people may say, you know what, 90% effective, that's worth it for me. I think you've got to, this nation has to move into a place where we trust community enough to say, if we give them the information, they can make an informed decision. That's what we would want for our society, people making informed decisions. But if science approaches the thing as we have the answers, we have the authority, shut up and listen to what we're doing. I think you, you come into some tensions where it's hard to tell the difference between people who just oppose science because of politics versus people who are suspicious of science because of science's history of abuse. Those differences matter. And science has got a PR problem on its hand that it has to correct. Yeah. So some might argue that, uh, you know, that one of the ways to address that, <laughs> that PR problem, as you name, is, is through the teaching of science in schools. And uh, there was an interesting uh, piece in the New York Times uh, last December about a group of biology teachers who were testing the idea that the science classroom may be the best place to actually engage students and kind of challenge some of the unscientific notions about race and uh, genetics as the you know, uh, or race as the genetic basis for human difference. Um, and we're wondering if you were to take a break from your work uh, at UCLA teaching college students and were to teach a high school biology class, um, how would you go about doing it? That's a great question. It's a question that I think 
actually a lot of professors are thinking about because of the pipeline of scientific education from very early through to high school and college is, a, is an issue because I think a lot of young people are taught biology in the following way. There's a sense of centering genetics as being crucial to life, which it is, but we often forget that our bodies, biology, whether it's humans or some other non-human species, our bodies are the end result of an interaction between genes, environment, and society. Our genes store the history of the past in certain kinds of ways and produce proteins and enzymes that allow us to adapt to an environment that's constantly changing. But that environment is not just nature, Mother Earth, it's the environment that humans make. Freeways, chemical pollutants, forever chemicals, plastics in the oceans, these things affect the whole ecosystem of life. And so what I think young people need to understand, and if I were to teach a biology course for high school, is to prioritize the effect that humans have on the environment that then affects our biology and getting them to think in the opposite direction. In other words, genes don't drive history. Actions and interactions with the environment are what make history move forward. And so our biology is like the, the result of this equation of interactions. And why that's more important now, I think, than ever is with uh, climate catastrophe on the horizon, we know that humans producing chemical pollutants in the air uh, are directly causing the sort of loss of life on a massive scale across the human and non-human. And if now more than ever, we have to understand the impact of the things that we make. So when we're making, you know, uh, you know, coatings for our pots and pans that have forever chemicals in them, and then you rush that off and it goes into your sink and then it goes into the waterways and then it gets into the ecosystem of plants and animals and then back into us because we eat those plants or animals. We are literally, we literally have DuPont and Monsanto and other chemical companies in our bodies. You can actually measure this, actually. You can see there are scientists and evolutionists who are looking at how the chemicals we produce end up affecting us. We have to understand this and take this seriously. But if we are teaching young people to think that somehow biology is a clean slate, you're born with this sort of like blank slate and you have the genes you have and you're just sort of destined to do whatever you're going to do. And no matter what happens in the world between life and death, it won't affect your bodies. We're off on the wrong foot. We've got to get students to think that biology is the interaction of, of society and our genetics and the environment coming together. And that, frankly, is the cornerstone of what evolutionary genetics and evolutionary biology should be. The constant attention to how the environment shapes uh, living organisms and humans. Now, I'm sure in some of those discussions with high schoolers about these issues, um, you know, race is going to come up. The, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on communities of color, that'll come up. And in trying to help students explore, um, as you said, like the impact of, of our society and environment on, on our bodies and on our genes, there's going to be some parent out there who says this is not what is supposed to be talked about in science class. When I was in science class, we dissected a pig's heart or a worm or something like that, and we studied peas and stuff. Why are you, why are you bringing up social issues? Why are you bringing up race? Um, especially now with the backlash that has been largely led by the president in terms of uh, backlash to the, the racial justice uprisings of the summer, 
and this notion that black lives matter and this notion that curriculum should be anti-racist and practices should be anti-racist, the backlash has been really, really strong. And there's been plenty of teachers who've uh, fielded a ton of complaints from parents about um, uh, allegations of trying to indoctrinate kids and, and trying to pass some sort of liberal agenda. So in teaching science and teaching biology and, and, and bringing up social issues, how do you think a teacher should deal with with those criticisms when a parent says like, hey, hey, this isn't what I learned in science class. Like, why are you trying to get my kid to think about like this food desert here? Like this is this is some of that liberal stuff. Um, how should teachers try to handle that? I would say the teachers who have the courage to take on these issues have to hold the line because education, despite what we may think in our society, is not a consumer choice model. American history is colored by racism and colored by uh, genocide and war. And what we need are young people who have the courage and sensibility to understand and, and grapple with this. And this means teaching in ways that are gonna make people uncomfortable, but that's growth. That's how growth happens. And I think it's the responsibility of educators to model for young people, hard, difficult conversations. And look, if a parent says, I don't want my son or daughter learning these things, they have the freedom if they would like to take the child out of that class or to, you know, do whatever form of protest they feel they may need. But if the teachers are being backed up by the principals and being backed up by the school districts, and I think they should hold the line. We need them to teach these young people in ways that are more effective because it's not working. The truth is Breonna Taylor's death and George Floyd's public execution is not a new thing. It inspired a social revolution for this generation, but black people in America have been witnessing these types of public deaths and murders since the beginning. And the fact that there was so much reaction to it, I think says something about where this young generation really wants to live in a better world. They don't wanna live in this world where that is normalized, where that is just another headline. They wanna live in a world that is thinking about how this stuff gets created. How is it that the coroner report says that George Floyd died because of a heart attack? How is that possible? These are scientists in medicine. How, how is it that he had a had heart failure? It's very clear that the restraint is what killed him. So never mind whatever pre-existing heart conditions he may have had. You can't give students the tools to understand this interaction if you are doing it with your hands tied behind your back. They've got to know about the racism in the nation. They've got to know about how it affects the science and the medicine. They've got to know about the police and how this how the, the, the policing of communities under this sort of military state in a lot of ways um, is a reality that threatens black and brown lives and indigenous lives all the time. These are tough conversations. And so I would, it's, you know, I'm an academic and, and working in a university space, so I have a certain matter, measure of privilege that I think all of you who are doing secondary education are in the trenches with this. And I really believe are doing the kind of important work that I would love to have academics be more in conversation with, and there are some things that are on the agenda here in, in LAUS uh, um, Unified and, and statewide to start thinking about how to create ethnic studies programs at the secondary level to create a kind of coherent view of how can we narrate American history and think about science and biology in step with what the generation needs. Because I think these students in this generation desperately need, they need it, they want it, you can tell. I mean, the streets were live with young people, for a reason. And if we don't respond to that, we may lose this generation. I think apathy and nihilism are real problems. 
And the day that we have another public execution, because they will continue to happen, and there is no reaction, I think that's a day that we've lost. Like we've lost a generation, and I don't want that to happen. And I think um, having conversations like this and in classrooms is one way that we can stop that. Well, here, here uh, yeah. on that, uh, <laughs> I, I definitely am feeling that. Um, I think, uh, Dr. Kiel, we're gonna we're gonna close with a question that's a little bit about uh, about your journey. And as I understand it, you began your your academic higher ed journey um, at Xavier University. And we had on a recent guest, um, Dr. Richard Reddick, who's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Shout out to Rich. And um, he mentioned while he was on our show that uh, Xavier University produces more uh, more black doctors, more black more black medical school graduates than any university in the country. And um, as K to twelve schools are kind of grappling with um, you know how to be anti racist and how to cultivate and nurture the talents and skills of of black students and students of color. Um, what is it in your mind that you think a school like Xavier is doing that um, other schools are are certainly not doing well enough yet? That's a great question. I, you know, it's something I think a lot about. Uh, I'm very proud to have gone to Xavier University in New Orleans. Um, I went there because I wanted to be a physician, and I was a pre-med biology major. Um, what I know that HBCUs do very well, and they've been doing this since they got the land grant money after Reconstruction, is creating a, an environment where Black people are in small classrooms with professors who look like them, who are trying to give them skills in a world that at every step of the way is trying to say that they're not worthy or they're not capable or they're not smart enough or they don't have the technology or the access or the privilege to do these things. And what my experience at Xavier was involved me working with black professors who believed in me and my classmates and understood the value of what education means for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, indigenous people who are also on HBCUs as well. I think that can't be underestimated how powerful it is to have a black educator in the classroom, which the two of you both know that power as black educators in the classroom. And to see it at the level, at the university level, it's quite powerful. And I think if we're gonna, to circle back to the conversation we were having a little bit earlier, how does medicine and science gain the trust of communities of color? You gotta have more physicians and doctors and scientists who are black. That is a crucial part of it because the pipeline reflects the people that you're treating and taking care of. And we need that. And the only way that can happen is through this education in STEM. And I think the HBCUs, especially Xavier, has done a very effective job at changing the lives of Black people, both at the level of creating physicians and doctors, but then also at the level of these physicians and doctors going back to our communities and opening up clinics and creating spaces to treat the illnesses that um, affect our communities. And so I, I think there's something about that model that has always, you know, benefited black life in this nation. Uh, and I happen to have been, um, had the privilege of, of, of being at a really beautiful institution that has definitely affected and touched my life. I would not be thinking about these issues that I write about now as a scholar were not for that experience. That is for sure. 
Oh, um, and I, I, I think, Jeff, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Richard uh, or Dr. Reddick uh, expressed similar, similar uh, thoughts about why Xavier is able to produce uh, so much black excellence. And, um, and yeah, this, uh, Dr. Keel, you've given us a lot to think about, and I, I definitely appreciate you taking time out to be on our show. For folks who are watching or listening, if you are an administrator, I, I want you to think about what Dr. Keel shared about having the teachers back when those parents come calling and complaining about this race stuff showing up in their science classes. And I want you also to think about what are your science teachers doing um, to help address the, the summer's reckoning for racial justice? And also, um, if you're a teacher listening, man, I hope his words echoed with you like they did with me, those words to hold the line. Our kids need it. This generation deserves it. And um, and yeah, so Dr. Keel, thank you so much for stopping by all the above. If you are uh, watching or listening and you want some more from Dr. Keel, he, he was on our second episode. We'll link that below. And we also had a one-on-one -on -one discussion with him about his book, Divine Variations, and we'll link that below as well. All right. But up next is our class dismiss, where we take a look at folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? If you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, we would very much appreciate it if you scroll down to the bottom and leave us a five-star rating. And when you have time, if you write us a little review, we would love that. In fact, if you write a review for us and screenshot it and send it to us, we will send you back an AOTA show sticker for your laptop or your notebook or wherever you put your stickers, all right? So write us a quick review, screenshot it, send it to us over Twitter or Facebook or wherever, and we will send you back an AOTA show sticker. We love y'all. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, welcome to today's Class Dismissed. This is that time in the episode where we like to just pause for a moment and give some shout outs to the folks out there doing good things in education. There's, there's so much challenging, controversial news. We need some positivity in our lives. And uh, Manuel, what do we got for today? Yeah, well, you know, today we have some really dope educators out of Sacramento. I saw our, our guest, Dr. Keel. He grew up in Sacramento, Southside Sacramento, to be precise, as did I. So we thought, you know what, for this class dismissed, let's spotlight some folks doing good work in the city of Sacramento. And the folks that we want to spotlight were recently profiled in a Sacramento Bee article about what schools in the region are doing in the wake of the uh, summer protests against racial injustice. And two folks who were profiled were uh, Dominique Williams and Luis Guerrero, who both teach at McClatchy High School in Sacramento City Unified. And during this summer, they, they didn't sit around and wait for PD to come down from the district. They didn't sit around and wait to see what their uh, district administration or, or school administration was gonna do. They went ahead and started holding their own PD for their fellow teachers around topics of anti-racism, and police violence, all right? So these two uh, held weekly sessions, two-hour Zoom sessions with uh, fellow faculty who were interested about how to incorporate anti-racism in the classroom. Now, Luis Guerrero is a, a math teacher and Dominique Williams is a ethnic studies teacher, and they really wanted to help their fellow faculty 
uh, raise their critical awareness and also have a little more, not information, but have a little more understanding about how their practices can be harmful to students. So we want to give a shout out to them because with everything else going on, with having to prepare for distance learning, with having to just deal with the pandemic and everything else, these two teachers went ahead and just created their own professional development for their colleagues because they knew their colleagues needed it. And um, that article in the Sacramento Bee, we'll we'll link that on our website so you could see more details about, about the work they did, but we definitely want to shout both of them out and um, yeah, just keep up that good work. And like Dr. Keel just said, hold the line. Indeed. Indeed. Well, shout out to the, uh, the brave, courageous educators in Sacramento for sure. And uh, folks, we want to thank you for sticking around to the end of our episode and joining us today. And as always, you can find all of our content on our website. That's aotashow.com. You can definitely find us on social media. We're at AOTA Show on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find all of our video content on our YouTube page. That's youtube.com slash all of the above, all one word. And for you podcast listeners out there, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you click, uh, you know, the, the button at the bottom to give us those five stars. Write us a review. We appreciate all of your support, folks. We really do. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.